Praise God. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It's great to see all of you here this morning. we got a lot to cover. I've got to jump right into it, but let's pray before we approach God's Word today. Lord, we thank you today for your blessings in our lives. We thank you today, Lord, for time in your presence. We thank you that you give us the privilege today of opening your Word. And Lord, as we do so, we do so reverently. We do so expectantly, believing that you desire to speak to your people. And so give us ears that are attentive uh, to your voice. Lord God, just we ask in this moment that you would... Uh, just block out any hindrances that would keep us from hearing what you desire to speak. And we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of a series called Heavenly Places. And uh, we are kind of pulling back the curtain, if you will, to see the spiritual realm that is all around us all the time. Because if we're honest, um, we're often so oblivious of what's taking place in the spiritual realm. As flesh and blood humans, we have very little understanding of the heavenly places in the spiritual realm because we generally cannot see it or hear it or, or touch it, right? And yet when we come to the Word of God, the Word of God assumes it because the heavenly realms, according to Scripture, are just as real as the earthly realm. And truth be told, we're actually going to spend most of our lives living in the heavenly places while this earthly existence is a vapor that's here today and it's, it's gone tomorrow, right? And so the physical battles around us can seem so very intense, but I said it last week, the results are actually temporary, but spiritual battles have eternal consequences, okay? And so we want to live our earthly lives in a constant recognition of the unseen realm because we know that when we do, we're going to be much more careful about what we do and what we say. We'll be much more careful to utilize the weapons that God has given to us. And so last week I talked a little bit about our enemy, right? Our enemy, Satan. And I said this, that we need to remember he is a finite being. Again, he is not a counterpart to God. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient, right? He is real, but he's also limited in power. In Job chapter 1, verse 7, uh, Satan comes before God, and God asks Satan a question. He says, from where have you come? And, and Satan says this. He says, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down it. Now, the spiritual realm, again, is real, and there are real battles that are taking place with real victories and also real tragedies. But how do we engage in this battle? Because, again, it has very real consequences. And so it is so important, church, that we know Satan's purposes. Like, what is he up to as he roams this earth, right? Understand this today. Because Satan is opposed to God and he knows that God is good, his primary purpose, if you're following along in the notes, his primary purpose is this, to disfigure the character and the ways of God. Often in politics... One party will try to dig up some dirt on the other party's candidate, right? And when they can't find anything, what do they do? They make something up, right? Can you imagine for a moment trying to find some dirt on God, right? Trying to find some way to speak bad about God. There's nothing bad to say, and so what does Satan do? He tries to disfigure and distort and lie about the very character of God. That was his plan from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree 
in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now look at his question to the woman. First of all, he says, did God actually say? Satan is causing her to question the very word of God, right? The, the direction of God. And look what he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's the oldest lie of the devil. God is somehow holding out on you, right? You can't actually believe what he says. You, you see, Satan wants to disfigure the character and the ways of God. He, he wants to make you think, man, if you follow God's rules and you, you follow God's direction, you're going to miss out. And so you might as well go your own way, right? Do it your way. It's this life that, that life is actually, this lie that life is actually found out of God's design. But the Word of God tells us the opposite, right? It tells us that obedience to God actually leads to blessing in our lives. Now, the second thing, the second purpose of the enemy is this. He wants to silence the gospel. He wants to silence the gospel. He, he wants to keep people from coming to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan also, the next thing he wants to do is to uh, keep us from fulfilling our God-given destiny. Keep believers from fulfilling their God-given destiny. Now, how does he do this? Well, he uses sin. He uses selfishness. He even uses sin that's committed against us to keep us from knowing God. Because here's the reality. When you know your creator, you will know what you were created for. Okay? When you know the one who has made you on purpose, you're going to find that purpose. And so Satan will tempt mankind to act independently of God. Luke chapter 4, Satan tries to even tempt Jesus to depart from his father's way, his father's agenda, by telling him to turn a stone into bread. Remember, Jesus is hungry. He's, he's starving. And Satan says, well, why don't you go ahead and turn that stone to bread? Use your power for your own agenda rather than the Father's agenda. Listen, not only will Satan tempt us to act independently from God, but he will tempt us to abandon our love and our loyalty toward God. And so when we speak of spiritual warfare, we need to understand, man, what is the mission of this battle that we're engaged in? That question is, is one of the, the most important ones we can ask with any challenge or project before us, right? When we take up the challenge of spiritual warfare, we need to understand our mission and we need to understand our strategic goals. Knowing our mission actually helps us to define our tactics and to know if we are succeeding. Are, are you waging an effective war against evil? How do you measure your efforts? I want to take you back to our text from last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Go ahead and turn there. And I, and I want to show you today two strategic goals in our spiritual warfare. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Beginning there in verse 3, Paul writes,
writes these words. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The first mission objective is this. We are called to tear down every argument that keeps people from knowing God. In the message, this verse is written this way. He says, it says, we use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies and tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God. Last week we talked about the weapon of truth, right? And the reality is, is that truth is our greatest weapon, church. It is our greatest weapon. The truth of who God is, the truth even in regards to our sin, the truth of the hope of the gospel. But if we lay down that truth, we've already lost. And you may say, well, pastor, I don't want to offend. I don't want to, I don't want to turn people off. I, I, I don't think we should be offensive, church, just for the sake of being offensive. But I think we need to understand that the gospel message itself is offensive, right? Like, like the one thing that Christianity cannot do is change its message to stop being offensive. I mean, truth be told, we're some of the most offensive people on the planet. Because we carry an offensive message. We're called to tell people of their sin. We're called to tell them of darkness. We're called to tell them of a judgment that, that is coming that will lead them to hell, ultimately, if they don't surrender to the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, the world hates me. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus says, when I call sin, sin, people hate me, right? And I got to say, church, it won't be any different for us at times, but that doesn't mean we ought to stay silent. It's amazing because every error has its own philosophies that shape the people in that error, often without too much conscious thought. But, but rarely do we go back and explore the foundations on which our thoughts and our reasoning stand. And so our culture gets locked into this fortress with some strong, though invisible, walls. And so we need to ask, especially as believers, why do we choose to live the way that we live? And, and what are the, the so-called truths in our society that are guiding and, and shaping the culture that we live in? What arguments and, and what pretensions have gripped our minds that need to be torn down so that we can truly serve God? See, the culture of the United States did not arrive where it is right now in 2021 simply by chance. Over the past few decades especially, the, the Western mind has been completely uh, reshaped, if you will. So much of you who grew up in this country don't even recognize the country that they grew up in. Why? Because the roadways on which our thoughts travel have been completely rebuilt. We think completely different than the people did when America was born as a nation. And now these, these modern philosophies are, are woven into our minds, not just by formal education. Many of our public schools have really become indoctrination camps for secular thought. That's what they've become, right? They, they, pushing an agenda and a way of thinking that is so contrary to the Word of God. But we got to realize we've picked up these ideas through cultural influences, through, through movies, through music that we listen to, through advertising and books and television, all of these things, right? And so today in America, you can easily adopt a non-Christian thought pattern without making a conscious thought to do so, right? You, you just receive what's being spoken to you. 
And there are certain basic assumptions about the meaning of life that have become strongholds in the minds of Americans. And, and we need to ask, is our thinking then lined up with the Word of God? Now, what is a stronghold? I want to focus on this today. A stronghold is this. It is an entrenched pattern of thinking. It's an entrenched pattern of thinking. In other words, strongholds begin in our minds and, and in our thinking that is completely contrary to the will of God. These are things that we can often recognize. We look at them and say, you know what, that's not aligned with God's character. That's not aligned with God's ways and his word. And these strongholds, here's the thing, they often leave us feeling powerless. They're often marked by a sense of hopelessness, an inability to bring about change apart from a supernatural work of God. And Satan tries to establish these strongholds in our thinking to keep us bound up in false belief systems. And the Word of God reminds us in Ephesians 4.26, In your anger do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. We're not to let the enemy get a foothold in, in our minds and in our thinking. Now, the word can be translated a place or an opportunity or a space. We're not to give the devil an opportunity to gain space in our lives. We're called to live in righteousness, and we're actually equipped by the Holy Spirit to do that, to, to actually live in righteousness. Understand this, we have a right standing before God. When we come to Christ, we put on His righteousness, right? It's, a, it's an alien righteousness. It's not our own, but because of that righteousness, we have a right standing with God. We have an advantage over the enemy, but listen to me, if you yield that advantage to the enemy, the enemy will take the opportunity to set up his camp and to establish a stronghold and imprison you in a particular sin. That's why spiritual warfare, church, begins with righteousness. Like, it's got to start there. Okay? You can't go casting out demons if you're not living rightly, right? And that righteousness, again, it comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And so, church, we need to deal seriously with sin in our lives. And we can't keep excusing our sin. I came across this quote this week, and it's so true, uh, by a guy by the name of Don Stratka. He says this, when we excuse our sin, we volunteer as a defense attorney for a thief who wants to kill us. Understand today, the spiritual battle requires the breastplate of righteousness. Because if you're yielding ground to the enemy through sinful living, you will never be victorious, okay? No matter how many books you read, no matter how many prayers you pray and understand, from a military perspective, strongholds are built in places that are already strong, right? Like the top of a hill, the high ground. Understand, the enemy does not only attack our weaknesses or our weak spots, but he also attacks the places where we think we're strong. Sometimes he attacks our strengths by causing us to rely too much on our abilities and that makes us confident in what we can do rather than what God does through us. And so what are these strongholds? That's what I want to talk about today. What are these entrenched patterns of thinking in our world today? One of these strongholds is what I would call radical individualism. Radical individualism. We, we so often worship our ability to our individuality to the point that we believe we have unlimited rights to do whatever we want to do. Today, the, the restraints of law or 
religion or morality are, are resented in our society. They're, they're being cast off, right? You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what's right and what's wrong. I have my own definition of what that is. It was about 40 years ago there was a, a popular Christian book published with the title, I Gotta Be Me. And it, Tammy Faye Baker, many of you remember the evangelist, uh, she was the wife of that televangelist. And, and despite her place of prominence as a Christian, she insisted that she just had to do what her individuality demanded of her. And, and sadly, few Christians challenged her. In fact, many Christians applauded her conclusions as bringing about a much-needed liberation in the church. Now, while Tammy Faye had some valid points about the judgmental culture, Within organized religion, she completely missed the bigger point that we are not free to be ourselves without concern for the effects of our choices and our actions. But truth be told, most of us sitting here today, we are imprisoned by this stronghold. We find it difficult to think of ourselves as being constrained by responsibility to each other or constrained by a responsibility to God. So often we buy into the lie and we're convinced that fulfillment and happiness will be found in doing what we want to do regardless of the will of God, regardless of the needs of friends or family or nation or church. But the wisdom of Scripture actually challenges this radical individualism with this statement, Romans 15.1. It says, For we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Wow. It says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, a second stronghold in our culture today is secularism. Secularism. The opposite of secular is sacred, right? Sacred. Have you ever found yourself thinking about your life and trying to carve your life into categories? These are things that matter to God, and these are things that don't seem to matter to God, right? We, we all kind of do that, right? But I want to ask, do, do you find yourself, like, consciously partitioning what you do here on a Sunday morning from what you do Monday at the office? In the mind of many, the God world and the temporal world are completely separate, right? And this divide began in our thinking about 300 years ago. Without knowing it today, most of us are secularists in the way we think. We've taught ourselves to isolate our, our spiritual lives from our real lives. And, and this stronghold obviously keeps people from knowing God in a powerful way. Now, here's a quick way to know if you are a closet secularist underneath your Christian words. Are you trusting God to get you to heaven, but seldom ask him about his will in the daily decisions of your life? If you don't think to pray for daily bread, right, the, the resources you need in your daily life, if you don't think to pray for daily guidance or make a daily commitment to God's will, you've been co-opted by secular. Now, the result is really a large population of those who call themselves Christians who are actually so stressed out and so hurried and, and, and so pressured by life and have no sense of God as a caring Father who richly provides all that we need. 
stronghold of secularism needs to be demolished by the truth of God's word. There is, in fact, no division between the sacred and the secular. Okay? Scripture teaches us that our Lord is God of present as well as eternity. What we do in this life will echo in eternity, right? What we, what we do in this life, though, though it's temporary, though it's a passing existence, it is important to God and will be called into judgment by Him. Now, a third stronghold in modern minds is this word relativism. You've probably heard of it, relativism. For many today, the idea of absolute right and wrong is completely unthinkable. Instead, for many today, truth is seen as relative. Now, several generations ago, those who called themselves believers were generally on the same page. Christians accepted universal principles of morality based on the authority of God's word. Certain actions and choices were simply unthinkable, and if made, they were judged by the church without apology, right? Those things are wrong, and tragically, that way of thinking is lost in our society today. Modern morality is now determined by Gallup polls, right? Whatever the majority says is right is judged to be right. This idea that we are accountable to a divine person who's established for all time and all people a certain standard is, is laughable. What a stronghold this is in our society today. Think about it. If a person is unable to think in terms of right and wrong, how can they ever come to a place of recognizing their need for a Savior? Right? Like, why would we need a Savior if we're not sinners but simply people who make poor choices sometimes, Right? You see, for a relativist, sin doesn't exist. They, they will agree at times, see how mistakes are made. They agree that some people live in a way that inflicts pain and suffering on others, and so we have to deal with the actions of those individuals. But the thought that such a person needs a Savior is foreign to the mind of the relativist. We are seeing in our time a revival of a, a social gospel that focuses only on the ills of society but not sin in the heart of man. And it's really, you've got to be careful, because it is really a, a push to radically revise Christian teaching to locate sin not in the hearts of people, but in the social structures of our day. And so rather than dealing with our own hearts, we can project the problems of the world onto others, right? You have men like Ibram X. Kendi speaking in the church about liberation theology. It's important that you know what this is, church. He states this, that Jesus was a revolutionary, and the job of the Christian is to revolutionize society. And Kennedy says this, the job of the Christian is to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. And he contrasts this to what he calls savior theology, which, can I just say, is the traditional orthodox theology of the church, that we're called to seek and to save the lost. That we're called by Jesus to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And what Kennedy is teaching, many others are teaching, is just a revival of this whole social gospel movement from over a century ago, but it never goes away. And it creates this false dichotomy, claiming that you can either be fighting against injustice in the world, or you can be saving souls. And the reality is that Christians are called to do both. But the primary reason for Christianity is that it is a means through which God reconciles lost men and women to himself. 
In fact, it is the only means of reconciliation. And so why is there this rejection? You'll hear it of Savior theology or traditional Orthodox theology because it tells people that the reason why they're struggling on earth is because of their own sinful deeds rather than just oppressive power structures. Now, I will not deny that there are oppressive power structures in our world today. Some of you are are dealing with those things, right? I'm not going to deny that, okay? Some of you are in a real battle with real power structures right now. But the primary reason for our personal struggles, if we're honest, so often is our own disobedience and our own sin, right? The choices that we've made that put us down that road. And Kendi goes as far as to say that Savior theology breeds bigotry. He and many others blame traditional Orthodox Christian teaching about sin, about our, our need for salvation. He says it is a catalyst for bigotry. And this idea that if you hold up the truth claims of Christianity, if you call sin, sin, you're causing division because you're focusing on what? Personal responsibility. But isn't that what the Word of God calls us to do? Amen? To, to judge our own hearts, to look inward, to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to lead us into righteousness. You see, the relativists cannot and will not accept the exclusive truth claims of Christianity. They will uh, insist that all paths lead to God, whoever or whatever the divine may be. Therefore, no one has a claim to absolute truth. Church, we need to tear down this stronghold. We, we need to realize that the scripture proclaims Jesus Christ to be the revelation of God to man. He's the only way to the Father. He is the only way to heaven. Genuine Christianity has taught for over 2,000 years that spiritual healing is the great physician's purpose. Listen, if he wanted to, Jesus could have become incarnate as government, right? He could have become incarnate as government, but then he would have missed the heart of the problem, and it's this, kingdoms are governed by men. And only by redeeming individual souls that make up the human race can the structures they create actually operate in righteousness. And so Jesus was not a political revolutionary. Instead, he came as a lowly servant. He was like us in every way, but he was without sin. And he came to take on and redeem every aspect of the human person. The gospel is not a message of material equity. It is a message of salvation from sin. Christ didn't come to save society. He came to save sinners. And and I want you to be aware of this, and maybe you need to do some more reading on it, because here's the reality. The real problem with liberation theology is it never actually addresses sin. It only addresses the symptoms of sin, but there will always be symptoms if we don't address the sin issue, okay? And so we need to proclaim that the Word of God is clear that we're all going to face a judge. We're all going to be face a judge who's going to hold us to equal standards that he declared by his word that he continues to write in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. The truth can be known, and the truth is not relative. Now, the second strategic goal found in our text is this, is to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In the message, it's written this way. We use our powerful God tools for fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Building lives of obedience into maturity. I love that. Building lives of obedience into maturity. Not only are we called to tear down the strongholds of wrong thinking in our culture and in our minds, we 
also need to order our thoughts after a godly pattern. Have you ever been in prayer or worship, like you're just in a moment of worship, and all of a sudden this thought comes into your mind that just scares you? You're like, where in the world did that thought come from? Like, I didn't think that one up. I'm not even thinking about that thing. And all of a sudden it comes into your mind, right? i got to tell you, these are the flaming darts of the envy that are described in Ephesians 6, right? But I want to ask you today, what, what thoughts invade your mind at times? Do, do you find yourself overwhelmed with, with fear? These thoughts of fear just grip you at times. Or maybe it's negative thoughts, tearing others down. You're unable to build others up. Do you struggle with even fantasies that come into your mind? You say, where in the world did that come from? That just leaves you full of shame find yourself unable to pray in faith because so often you're doubting God's goodness. These are examples of thoughts that need to be taken captive and they need to be ejected from your mind. In our text, we find some very strong language. Verse 5, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is a picture of a, a military operation where there are prisoners of war taken captive so they can no longer be effective. Right? Their freedom is stripped away along with their weapons. Listen, if we would live an effective Christ-honoring life, the same thing needs to happen in our minds. We need to strip those invading fantasies and imaginations, patterns of unbelief, those lies and those temptations of the freedom to come at will, and we need to strip them of their power to control us. Well, how do we do this? Can we do it by sheer force of will? Partially. Just think about how much strength that takes, right? That's why some Christians are, are fairly worthless for the Lord, because all of their strength is sapped by this internal battle, right? They're, they're so consumed with simply controlling their own anger and lust and greed and fear that they cannot do anything else. Neil Anderson writes this. He says, A believer may lead a fairly normal Christian life on the outside while wrestling with a steady barrage of sinful thoughts on the inside. This person has virtually no devotional life. Prayer is a frustrating experience, and he usually struggles with relationships with other Christians. He has no idea he is in the middle of a spiritual conflict. Instead of recognizing that their minds are being peppered by darts of demons, they think the problem is only their own fault. I just say, in the, the battle, in our mind, there is victory to be had. It's in the realization that, at least in part, the warfare is not within yourself, but it's evil forces that need to be taken captive, and they need to be cast out. And so how do we do this? I want to give you some keys here this morning. Number one, we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we give ourselves completely to Christ, and we invite Him to to be our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and actually establishes a beachhead from which we can now advance and take control over those thoughts in our minds. But let me say this, there's no victory without this first step. Like, there's no victory without surrender, because Jesus is the one who fights our battles. And so there's no victory without surrender. Number two, we learn to take authority in Christ over accusing spirits that afflict with all power. We learn to take authority in Christ over these accusing spirits. We need to pray that Christ gives us strength and courage, and then we speak out to those demonic forces that are really afflicting us at times. 
When you're, when you're overwhelmed by doubt and fear and, and it's just gripping you, you can say, doubt, you've got no place. you got to go, right? Spirit of fear, you've got to leave. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And because of that, I know he loves me, right? And so you can say, you've got to leave in the power of God. Now, the first time you do this, you might feel stupid because, again, we're trained not to think of the unseen spirits. But I assure you today, the spiritual realm is real. And when you find or these fiery darts coming your way, and you speak out against them and you see victory, you're going to get over it. You'll accept it pretty quickly. You're going to get over it pretty quickly. You will appreciate the freedom that is yours by the power of Christ working in your life. Number three, retrain your thought processes with the truth of the Scripture. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of God renews our mind with truth. So hear me. Therefore, it is your responsibility, not just pastor's responsibility. It is your responsibility to learn the word of God. It's your responsibility to learn the scripture so that when the tempting or the testing or the accusing thoughts come, whether they come from your own mind or they come from a lying spirit, you can encounter those thoughts, you can come against those thoughts with the truth of the Word of God. You see, when you believe the Word of God and you declare the Word of God and you act upon the truth of the Word of God, you will stop the schemes of the enemy in your mind and you'll begin to know real freedom. You'll begin to know real freedom. So would you stand with me today? We're going to go to the communion table just a few moments. But before we do that, I want you to think on this, on the strategic goals of the spiritual war that you're engaged in today. We understand today, first of all, we are to tear down every argument that keeps people from knowing God. We're to begin to resist radical individualism with its insistence on selfishness. When when I live only for myself, people don't see God the way they should see God, right? We need to tear away the lie of secularism that separates God from the mainstream of life. We need to live the same on Monday as we do on Sunday church. It all ties together. We are to demolish the deception of relativism by understanding the moral absolutes of the Word of God, understanding that sin is real and that a Savior is needed.
seeing God in your life. Maybe you've been living in such a way that there's this great divide between the sacred and the secular. And God's saying to some of you today, either I'm Lord of all or I'm not Lord at all. Some of you today, you need to make a commitment to his lordship in every area of your life. Maybe you've been living by your own truth or professing your own truth. You have yet to come into submission to the word of God. Or maybe today, you just need to ask the Holy Spirit for his strength to take every thought captive in your life and make it obedient to Christ. So before we receive the bread and the cup, before we recognize what Christ has done for us, I want you to ask him with heads bowed around this room, Lord, how would you have me to respond because of what you've done? Take a moment if you need to confess something before him, just confess. There's freedom today. There's no shame in that. There's actually freedom as we confess our sins. He, he's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins. He's present.